Good morning, everyone. Good to see you all. You should have turned to the book of Nehemiah chapter 11. <clears throat> Nehemiah 11. I'm going to read just a brief section of this text, and I'll reference a few different passages as we make our way through uh, the account this morning. I want us to read, beginning in verse 39 of chapter 10. If you'll remember, this is the passage that James ended with last week. This is the end of the oath or the promise, the contract that the people of God are making between themselves and God. They have signed an oath with God, a decision, a choice, a commitment. And as it ends, they say this. It says, the people of Israel, including the Levites, are to bring their contributions of grain, new wine, and oil to the storerooms where the articles for the sanctuary are kept and where the ministering priest and the the gatekeepers and the singers stay. And then this is the sentence I want you to fix your heart on. Here's their commitment. We will not neglect the house of our God. Now, the leaders of the peoples settled in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of every ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while the remaining nine were to stay in their towns. I want to work through this text this morning from the perspective of choices. My dad is uh, in his 82nd year of life. He's 81 years old. And uh, I think as you get older, you kind of simplify things. You because of uh, the larger perspective that you have of life, you, 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 you're able to kind of condense the larger issues of life into brief, con- concise statements. And my dad has uh, cultivated a predictable response to the news of hearing about a life imploding. Uh, you've had this happen around you, I'm sure, where something that someone that seemed otherwise healthy and strong, and the life seemed all in place, well-ordered and neat. And then there's this collapse. I've watched it in churches. I've watched it in people's lives. I've watched it in business. My dad has a predictable response to that. It's one that he shares with my mom, because my mom tends to be the melancholic in my family, and my dad tends to be the type A personality, so he's got life summarized to a word. Here's what he says to my mom. Every time she's, if she's down, he says, Barbara, choices. Barbara, choices. So much of our lives boils down to choices. To decisions that we make along the road of life. You cannot escape the effect of your choices on your life. You can't. So I want to challenge you this morning to think about life carefully and to make choices about life with great caution because there is a biblical principle that you cannot avoid and that principle is this you reap what you sow that is an unavoidable principle from the word of God that applies to every area of life now few of us will be faced with monumental choices Few of us will. I never had to sit back and wrestle when I was 19, 20, 21 years old, wrestle with the question of whether or not I would go into the NFL. Just not something that ever showed up on my radar. I was never considered to become the CEO of Apple Corporation. Never had to wrestle with that. 
My biggest decision in life was probably uh, my decision uh, to respond to the evidence that was present in my lovely wife that she was a very worthy candidate to be my wife. And she made a good choice. <laughs> I've never asked my wife if she regretted that. I have never asked you that. Don't respond in public because you could ruin the whole sermon. <laughs> I just had to pray and leave. <laughs> No, most of us will be defined by smaller choices, by daily choices. It's part of life, isn't it? Under Nehemiah's leadership, the people have come back from captivity. And there's a sense of hope that is present. Some of them have been there for years, but without leadership, Nehemiah has come back to lead them in rebuilding these walls. Some 48,000 came back. A couple decades before Nehemiah shows up on the scene. Now Nehemiah shows up on the scene. And there is hope that there is a leader who has a sense of responsibility. And a burden that he has received from God. A burden that culminates in Nehemiah 1 and verse 3. And I've I've read this to you a couple times. Nehemiah 1 and verse 3. It says this. This is the word that Nehemiah heard from the person who had visited the city of Jerusalem. When he was still back in Babylon. Here's the word he heard. They said to me. Those who survived the exile are back in the province, and they are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. Nehemiah knew that the city of Jerusalem was a place where the name of God was to be made great and known. And when he heard the word that the city was broken and the people were in disgrace, he could not abide that statement, that observation, that analysis, it drove him to do something. It caused him to make a choice about the glory of God and about the people of God. People living in disgrace and the city burned and broken was not okay with Nehemiah. And so it drove him to make a fundamental and profound shift in his life. Nehemiah 1 through 7 is the recording of the story of the rebuilding of the walls of the city. Chapter 8 is the story of the people gathering together to hear the word of God. And 9 through the end is their response to what they heard. That's the summary of the book. And we come in the middle of the movement towards what do you do with the city that's been completely restored externally? It is now a secure city. The walls in a miraculous amount of time have been rebuilt. The gates have been reset. The city is fundamentally sound and secure. And what you find is that there is, on the move and part of the people, a statement that comes out in verse 38 of chapter 9. I want you to look at that verse, 38 of chapter 9. It says, in view of all of this, all that they have heard about their relationship with God, the brokenness of it, and what needs to happen, in view of all this, we are making a binding agreement, a choice, an oath, solemn, putting it in writing, and our leaders... Our Levites and our priests are affixing their seals to it. And so what is this? This is is the people of God moving towards a choice driven by spirit and word and worship. That's what happens in chapter 8 and 9. Spirit, word, and worship come together and begin to challenge the people of God. And they arrive at a decision that we're going to make an oath. And then the rest of chapter 10 tells you who's involved in making the oath and what the oath specifically entails. Okay, so that's the choice that the people of God have come to make. 
I want you to notice in verse 29 of chapter 10 that this oath is solemn and exhaustive. It says, all these now join their brothers. That's the list of names at the beginning of verse of chapter 10 that none of us have been brave enough to read in public. Okay, all these now, that's, that's our summary of the first 10 to 12 verses, okay? Because we can do that. They join their brothers, the nobles, and bind themselves with a curse that is consequence for avoiding the oath and an oath to follow the law of God given through Moses, the servant of God, And notice this, to obey carefully all of the commands, regulations, and decrees of the Lord our God. Well, that's how comprehensive this decision is. I want to tell you something. Reluctant decisions will never change you. These wholehearted, exhaustive decisions are the ones that will bring shifts in your life along the way. And so the people of God in this occasion come to face a solemn choice and they move powerfully. Now, as you read through chapter 10, you'll find that there is still an unresolved tension in the story of this book. The wall has been rebuilt. It is fundamentally secure. The gates are in place. The city is locked down. But there's a problem. And it's stated in chapter 7 and verse 4. Let me just read this for you because this is important for the context. It says, After everything is done in this miraculous amount of time, it says, now the city was large and spacious, but there were few people in it, and the houses had not yet been rebuilt. So that's the, if you will, the elephant in the room for everyone. The city's done, but where's Israel? Where are the people of God? They're settled in the suburbs of Jerusalem. So when you move into chapter 11, you find how this tension of an empty city is resolved through the choices of the people of God. Okay, so let's work our way now through this text by looking at the importance of choices that you and I face in our lives. And we'll see how the tension is resolved and how important our choices are. I want to make a couple observations this morning for you. The first one is this. The choices that we make, the bigger choices, the kind of have to deal with our relationship with God and restoration are often driven by times of crisis. Okay, the strong choices that we make are often in our lives driven by moments of crisis, a moment of brokenness that gets our attention. In this text for Nehemiah, the city was broken, the people were in shame and disgrace. Nehemiah is like, that's not okay with me. And so Nehemiah responds to that crisis that breaks his heart and causes him to weep and fast before God with a commitment to do something to resolve the tension of the city broken and people in disgrace. And folks, Nehemiah believed that God was in the business of restoring brokenness and people that lived in disgrace. He believed that God wanted to see people's lives changed and restored. And so he moves into action. The crisis that the people face is in chapter 8, verse 9. As the word of God is read to them, they come to realize how far off base, how out of sync they are with the plan and purpose and will of God. And here's what they do. They begin to, to the Bible says in, in, in chapter 8, and verse 9, it says they began to weep and mourn. And you'll remember three times the text 
verse 8, verse 9, and verse 10. It records that as the people heard that their lives were out of sync with God, hadn't they realized that their choices were broken? They wept. And the leaders called them to repentance and also to a season of joy and festivity as they turned from their sin back towards God. This is a text in this case about them taking responsibility for past choices. I want you to look in verse 36 of chapter 9. This is them reckoning with their crisis. They say, but see, we are slaves in the land you gave our forefathers. So they could eat its fruit and the other good things it produces. Because of our sins, our choices, it is abundant, our, its abundant harvest goes to kings you have placed over us. They rule over our bodies and our cattle as they please. And notice the next statement. We are in great distress. What the people of God began to realize that this brokenness was seeping into their lives. It was, a, it was affecting them deeply. There was a shame and a disgrace that had come over them. Now that the word of God is read, they begin to have their eyes open and they see that their choices had led them astray and God allowed the crisis to bring them back into his presence and back into a relationship with him. As I read this text, I, I, my mind could not stop drifting to the story of the prodigal son who made choices that led him down. And when he was faced with a crisis, his heart turned towards God. When his life began to unravel, he come, here's what the text says. The Bible says, when he came to his senses, he said to himself, as he was eating pig's slop, at the very bottom, a crisis. He said, don't my father's servants have it better than me? Crisis decision. He says, I know what I'll do. I will arise and I will go to my father. I'll repent of my sin and I will submit myself to his authority and leadership. And as he goes through that move, you realize that this decisions to move away from God culminate in a crisis that brings about brokenness that leads to repentance and a decision to follow God. And what that means is this, folks. Those crises come so that you can experience a season of repentance, turn away from your brokenness, and back into the favor of God. That's why the crisis comes. So choices are often driven in our lives by moments of crisis. And I want to give you a warning. My warning is this. Weeping for a time, brokenness over your bad choices is a good thing. But if it persists to the point that it belittles the power of the cross of Christ, it becomes sinful in and of itself. It belittles the accomplishment of Christ's work on the cross. It belittles the forgiving nature of God who is holy and just and who forgives you through his son. So if your tendency in the crisis is to stay there because you feel like you need to be punished, be careful that you don't become Christ and crossed belittling in your self-beating. And think that somehow your punishment of yourself has greater value than the punishment that Jesus Christ already bore for all of your rebellion. Okay, you, you need, if you are sitting in a crisis thinking, God can't love me again, you are wrong. And you need to engage the crisis. Get up and go back to your heavenly father. Because he is never glorified by our self-pity and self-destruction. 
Confession and repentance from your heart is Christ and cross-exalting. And therefore, it is God-glorifying. So embrace the crisis. Say, God, thank you for bringing me to an end of myself and for bringing me to a choice by the power of your spirit to choose what is right and to pursue you with all of my heart. Then you will look back at your crisis and say, God, as the prodigal son, I'm sure in the story would have done if it was a true story and not a parable. He would have said, God, thank you for bringing me to the bottom so that I could rise to the top. It's not till you see your brokenness that you will make a choice to rise on the wings of the grace of God. I challenge you with that this morning. Secondly, humble choices, I believe, are driven by three things. And they're, they're present in this text. Chapter 8 is a season in the Word of God. Chapter 9 is a season of confession and growth and commitment and worship. And mixed in it is a call to sensitivity to the Spirit of God. I want you to look at this in chapter 9. It comes up in two places. As they hear the Word of God, and as they contemplate their state, verse 20, it says, you gave your good spirit to instruct them. And then go to verse 30. For many years you were patient with them. By your spirit you admonished them through your prophets. I notice in this text a pattern that emerges. There are three things and we strive to make these our focus on Sunday morning. Word and worship so that the spirit of God can take the truth of God and wield it in our lives so that there is change. We don't get up here as the pastoral team on Sunday thinking that we have excellent communicating skills and therefore can alter your thinking by pure persuasion. We get up with a sense of brokenness, a sense of intimidation, a sense of fear that we are weak, but with confidence that God is strong. So we proclaim to you the word of God. We sing the word of God and we desire that the spirit of God would move in the hearts of his people like he did for the people of Israel in this text. He confronted them. He admonished them. He brought them to realize the truth of what was said and what was sung. I want to challenge you this morning to ask yourself this question. Do you come, do I come into the house of God on Sundays with the desire to see God work? With an expectation that the Spirit of God wants to apply the Word of God when it is sung and said to my heart. So that my eyes can be lightened, illuminated, so that I could see my life for what it really is and find my disgrace and shame being stripped off and the righteousness of Christ put on. Do I come with that expectation? Now, I want to show you in this text how I think that happens. Okay, because we have the unresolved tension, the elephant in the room, the city is empty. No one's there, but it's not. Look at verse 1. Of chapter 11. Now the leaders of the people settled in Jerusalem. Which means what? It means leaders have a responsibility to step out in front of the people of God. Doing the things that they believe the people of God should be doing. That's the job of leaders. To lead by example and in that example to influence people to do the things that God wants them to do. In every case. That's what you should expect of the leaders within this church. Secondly, it says this. It says, and the rest of the people, after the leaders had gone in, the rest of the people cast lots 
to bring out one of every 10 to live in Jerusalem. So what's happening? Everybody's going, okay, who wants to move in? It's kind of like what happens with church on Sunday morning. Sometimes you ask a question, it's kind of get, happens in my Sunday school class sometimes with the kids. You think if you ask a really obvious question, you just get, so Nehemiah's like, okay, who's going in? No one. So what did Nehemiah do? He said, okay, we'll have a draft. So they drew lots. One out of every 10 were told to go into the city. Okay, that's how the city started to be filled. Why don't you notice verse 2? It says, the people commended all the men who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. So I have two groups of people here. I have people who are going in by demand, by draft. And I have people who are going in voluntarily. The question that kind of hangs in my mind as I go through this is, why wouldn't anyone go back into the city? Why was everyone so reluctant to go back into the city? And here's, I believe, why. The city was broken and burned. It has been a target. For 160 years, it sat empty and destroyed. Who would want to live there? And verse 7 or verse 4 of chapter 7 says the houses were in ruins. What had the people done? They had become accustomed to life in the suburbs of Jerusalem. Life was good there. They were less of a target. They weren't consolidated. They were actually more safe living independently than they were living collaboratively in the city. And so that was the chosen life. But it's not where God called his people to live. And the interesting thing is, when it says those who volunteered, the word kind of carries this connotation. Those who were impelled from within who felt willingness rising up within them, stepped forward and said, we're going in. We're going to live there. Folks, I don't know what you attribute movements of God in your life to, but I think the word of God attributes it to the work of the Spirit. Prompting and then guiding and pressing and speaking and directing. And in the New Testament, that theme is picked up. You come to Galatians 5, what does it say? Walk in the Spirit. And keep in step with the Spirit as God prompts you. Volunteer. The idea is to surrender to what it is that he wants. And he wants to do in your life. That's a choice that we make. Will I surrender to the word said and the word sung as the Spirit of God illuminates how it fits into my life? Every Sunday I face a choice. Every time I open God's word, I'm faced with a choice. Little choices that in the aggregate will be the picture of my entire life. I like to think of our choices as pieces of a puzzle. And every decision is part of that puzzle that's placed together that ultimately coalesces to be who you are and the legacy that you leave behind and the impact that you have on the lives of people around you. Every choice makes a difference. Third observation I want to make is this. Choices that we make are often more serious and more consequential than we believe. Because I cannot help but look at Nehemiah's choice to follow God and realize what a difference he made. Because when he heard of a problem, he felt a burden. It broke him. He wept. He prayed and said, God, what do you want me to do? And he took all of his God-given resources, including his position in life, and submitted it to the purposes of God and watched God 
work. So I ask you this morning, what is it that God is laying on your heart that he wants you to do? Our lives are all made up of choices. Choices to be pure. Choices to confront lust. Choices to avoid certain influences. Uh, Choices about using substances to forgive, to be honest, to be truthful, to lie, to be a person of integrity at work, to pay your taxes. To help a needy person. To serve others. To confront selfishness in your heart. To love your mate. To decide who you will date. Choices to confront an abusive pattern with alcohol. To confess issues of anger. Choices not to gossip. Choices to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Daily choices, large or small, matter. Because they unavoidably determine the moral trajectory of your life. Folks, this is where we live. Every day, we are faced with choices. And I want to I implore you, I want to challenge you from this text to grasp the importance of this. Any responsible parent sitting in this room has wrestled with this tension with their teenager. As they kind of come into that age group where they're kind of like, they're like pre-people, they're not really full-blown people yet, but they're getting close And they think they already are adults, okay? I remember a saying, it says, I wish all of life's problems hit me when I was 16 and knew everything. (laughs) You got to think about that a second. The struggle you have as a parent is what? Is communicating to your child that every choice you make matters. And we live with some degree of fear at times, right? About choices that they're going to make. And rightfully so. Rightfully so, because unavoidably, the moral trajectory of a life is determined by the choices that are made. There are choices that have enormous consequence. There are choices that have shorter-lived consequence, but every choice has a consequence. What you sow, you will reap. Mark it down. So I want to impress upon you that you you don't have and you don't face choices that are of no consequence. And I would challenge you to look at the first temptation. You know what Satan did? First, he snickered at the word of God. Did God really say? Downplaying the power of choices. And then Tim Keller says, then he sneered. You won't really die. And then they got snookered. When you believe that your choices don't matter, you are setting yourself up for a fall. When you believe that they matter and that they're consequential, you will thoughtfully and prayerfully execute your life for the glory of God. And only when you are careful about the importance of choices will you see your life rescued from the horrors and brokenness of sin. The group Casting Crowns released an album, it must be 15 years ago now, I think something like that. And they had a song on that first album called It's a Slow Fade. Probably heard that song. I printed out the section of the song that just, for me personally, just like a dart. Here's what he said. It's a slow fade when you give yourself away. It's a slow fade when black and white are turned to gray. And thoughts fade. Choices are made. A price will be paid. 
when you give yourself away. It's a slow fade. It's a slow fade. You know what Satan wants us to think? He wants us to think that choices don't matter. I think this text tells me that in the history of Israel, choices mattered so much. And in the restoration of Israel, choices are what it was all about. So I challenge you to be careful. I used to sing a song when I was a kid, and it's in this song. Be careful, little eyes, what you see. Be careful, little mouth, what you say. Be careful, little feet, where you go. Be careful, little hands, what you do. All of them are the means by which you make choices, by which you execute your life. And God calls you to be very, very careful. Because every choice you make has consequences. And here's what Satan wants you to do. He doesn't want you to jump off the cliff, off a burning platform. He wants you to slowly fade out. And he wants you to think it won't matter. I want you to know it will matter. And the last thought this morning that I want to drive into your hearts from one verse at the end of chapter 10 is that the best choices are driven not by a desire for personal happiness or the pursuit of it. The best choices you made make are driven by a desire to see God glorified in your life. And I want you to notice how they say this at the end of chapter 10. They say, and I, I, I can't read this text in any other way, but to see that this verse is a summary of the whole chapter that precedes it. All the things that James went through last week. All of the commitments that make the people of God distinct. All the choices that they promised. They culminate them in one promise. All solidified. And here's what they say. We will not neglect the house of God. We will make as our top priority the honor and glory of God through the choices that we make. And as I read that, I got this this, I call it an echo, okay? And this is the way that Doug Moo refers to Old Testament promises tying out the New Testament truth and seeing the connection between the Old and New Testament. Here's the verse that popped into my mind, Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together, as is the pattern of some. But devote yourself to gathering together as the body of Christ. Folks, God has given you the church, the body of Christ, your brothers and sisters in Christ, as the means by which he desires to purify your life along with word, worship, and spirit. And all of those things coalesce together in vital relationships where our lives are changed. And the commitment of the people of God as they got to the end of this was we see what we did. We neglected the house of God. Folks, listen, the purpose of Jerusalem was to house a temple. And in that temple, God's presence and God's glory was made known to the world. That's how it worked. And God said to Israel, I appoint you as a city on a hill to be a light to the world. There people can come and know me. You know what God does today? 1 Corinthians 6, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, which is in you, which you have of God. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. You were owned, and therefore your choices are owned by God. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether therefore you eat or drink or whatever you do is the house of God, do it all to his glory. 
Folks, there is no choice in your life, no singular choice that will affect you so substantially as will the choice to say, I want my life to be about the chief purpose of man, which is to love God and glorify him forever. There is no greater objective that will produce the deepest joy in your life than that pursuit. You know what your alternative is? Your alternative is selfishness. That's the alternative. Life is going to be about God or life is going to be about me. And I have not ever met a happy person whose life is all about me. Selfish people are never happy people. People that love God and love their neighbor as themselves, I find to be the most joyful, satisfied, God-glorifying people on the planet. And they make awesome members of a local church where God has designed to magnify and exalt his name. Joe and I were talking at the building. What night were you there, Joe? Wednesday night? Joe stopped by and worked for about five minutes, said he was tired and had to go. <laughs> uh, he came, he spent time at the electrical panel. So we're like, hey, let's just let Joe back there alone in the room that has a glow. And uh, after we were done, you don't mind if I say what we talked about outside, right? Okay. After we get done, uh, we were talking and Joe, Joe's pretty straightforward and honest. He said to me, you know what? I'm selfish by nature. I said, I noticed. No, I didn't say it. I didn't say it. And what he was saying, well, he says, Tim, I, I would have rather been home tonight. I would have rather been home taking care of the projects that I've got going on in my house. I'm selfish by nature. And he realized the benefit of coming. The benefit he told me was that he got talking to Tim Matthews and got to fellowship with him in a way that would never have happened apart from serving together. But see, folks, when we make it about a building, we are wrong. It is never about the place. It's about the one that we seek to honor and glorify, and it's the place where we seek to love one another. That's what it's about. That's, that Joe's take-home was that. I got to know a brother in Christ in a way that I would have never known him apart from being there that night at that time to talk to him. Folks, it, it's about choices. My siblings and I kind of laugh about my dad's fundamental assessment of life. Choices, Barbara. Choices. I reacted to it negatively at first. I've gotten used to it because what he says all the time. But I realized that it's true. It's true. Here's something about someone that's good. Choices. This person's life is going here. This is happening. God is blessing. Choices. This happened. Choices. I have a family member who struggles, has struggled for 25, 30 years. And to be honest with you, that's where the word choices came from. It's the way that my dad tries to communicate to my mom how to deal with what's happened. Choices. Bottom line is my dad can't make choices for my brother. My brother has to make choices for himself. You have to make choices for your life that affect this body. And family members at times make bad choices that affect their family. 
badly. May God help us to be careful, little eyes, ears, feet, and mouth. That we would guard our hearts against the slow fade. That we would say, God, I want to begin to make choices that alter the direction of this church for good. The direction of my family for good and for the glory of God. Then and only then will you really be happy. I thought about Nehemiah coming to the city and weeping. And I thought about my Savior coming to that city 400 plus years later. When he saw the city, what did he do? He wept and made a choice. Father, not my will, but your will and your glory be known. And because of that choice, my life has been forever changed. May God help us as his people to become serious about our choices because they are consequential. And in the aggregate, they make up the picture of our life and us together and all of our choices make up the chapel at Warren Valley, which is the witness of one of the witnesses that God has placed in this community for his glory. May God help us to be people who listen to the word in, as it's said, as it is sung, and as the spirit applies it so that God will do mighty things through this church family for his glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for worship this morning where we have sung biblical truth that changes my heart. And thank you for your spirit who speaks subtly at times and strongly at times, who prompts and directs and leads and guides. God, help us as a church family to be committed to God-honoring choices. Lord, if there's someone here who is sitting in their crisis I pray this morning, God, that the choice to repent and believe and trust would be so strongly impressed upon their heart this morning that they cannot resist what the Spirit is saying to them today and that they cannot leave here the same because in Christ there is hope. By the Spirit, cause them, I pray, to choose today new life in Christ. And help us, God, as your people to surrender all that we have to you. We pray in his name. Amen.